Okay, this week we will round out our third full year on the Gravity Podcast, and we have pieced together some highlights from the year. And it has been a year. It's been a really wonderful year. On the podcast, we've had an opportunity to really have some incredible conversations with some nationally, internationally recognized people from all walks of life, uh, as well as many of my friends here locally in Columbus. And uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful, wonderful year for the podcast. So many amazing humans out there in the world doing such incredible work. And so hopefully you will enjoy this episode with just pieces together, some clips and highlights from some of our most memorable guests from the year. And thanks for joining me each and every week. It really means a lot to have you as a listener. Please, please, please share, subscribe, give us reviews, comments, recommend guests. You know, we love your input and totally need and appreciate your support in continuing to spread the word about what we're doing here if you feel so compelled. So I hope that everybody has a wonderful holiday season, has an opportunity to really take a break, spend some time with loved ones, and just take in all that there is to appreciate and love and embrace about life and uh, wishing all of you a, a beautiful, beautiful, happy holiday season and a wonderful new year. Cheers to all that lies ahead. We will uh, continue to be together in this journey in a variety of ways. And hopefully this podcast is just one of those for you. Happy holidays and happy new year. And then I actually got in a physical fist fight on a basketball court in Los Angeles, like a couple months after that. So kind of all of these things, everyone was okay, but it was just kind of like my best friend was with me at the time playing on this pickup basketball game when it happened. And he was like, you're just getting really reactive in situations that you don't need to be. This is a simple pickup game. There was nothing life-threatening and yet you reacted to his reaction and allowed this to happen. And you could have de-escalated it, but you didn't. And I don't want to play basketball with you anymore if you're going to be like this. So it was kind of like all these things kept happening. And I was like, huh, I'm at the center of all these challenges. I can't blame everyone else. This is my responsibility. And I remember just thinking, okay, let me, let me take a look at this, analyze myself, and let me try some stuff. And so people were recommending workshops. I was like, all right, let me try all these different workshops and see what's out there. And one of these workshops is what allowed me to finally get feedback about how I'm showing up to be able to receive it and to, that's when I started opening up about sexual abuse for the first time was in one of these workshops. And that sent me down a path of researching so much more on different types of therapies, modalities, healing processes that I feel like I've tried so many of them over the last 10 years. And I'm constantly willing to explore new stuff because I think there's always a journey of healing. It's not like you're healed and it's over and you just, you don't have to worry mm -hmm. about it anymore. It's a constant journey of healing. And it's been a 10-year journey, and it's mm -hmm. been a beautiful one. The recession was happening in 2008, if you remember that, with the housing mm -hmm. crisis. People weren't hiring those that had master's degrees, and I hadn't graduated college yet because I left early. So I was really struggling emotionally, psychologically, and financially. I didn't make any money for a while, and I was at my sister's house. 
as a 23, 24 year old feeling like a bum. But luckily I had somewhere to go and she gave me food and shelter. And after a year and a half, she was like, it's time to start paying rent or you got to go. And that's when I said, okay, let me, my brother was living in Columbus. So I called him. I said, Hey, can I crash your place? (laughs) He said, you got to pay, you got to pay rent. And that was one of the best things that my family did for me as they held me accountable. Like they gave me time, but then they were like, all right, it's been a year and a half. Like it's time to get a job, do something like you got to figure it out. And that was the, the time where I was like, okay, I've got to really take a risk and be willing to fail and ask for money and find opportunities and see what sticks. And because my back was against the wall and I was required now to take more ownership and responsibility for my life, it forced me to get creative, to take risks emotionally, ask for things that maybe I didn't feel like asking for because of my ego and try things. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, since I was on LinkedIn so much for that year and a half, connecting with people, trying to meet local inspiring people, I started to also add value to the people I was connecting by asking them what's the biggest challenge. And since I had such a big network at that time of, of leaders, Locally, I was like, oh, you should connect to so-and-so or Brett's doing this thing or Josh is doing this thing and connecting them. So I just became kind of the champion of people's problems by finding them solutions. And and I realized that that was a skill set and I didn't know that was a skill. Mm. I truly believe that's where the healing work happens when you heal those memories of the past and create new meaning behind them you become at peace with them. And that sets you emotionally free. Mm. You still might have to hold, be accountable to certain things and have ownership of things, but it's, it's about that inner world. And I've done, you know, I've done a lot of work in prisons because my book, my, my previous book, The Mask of Masculinity was all about how men can mm-hmm. pull back the masks and emotionally be free. Mm-hmm. And a lot of prisons have, you know, inmates in prison have sent me these beautiful handwritten letters about how they've found freedom and peace behind bars mm-hmm. through the work. And I've gone in and led workshops in, in California to a few different prisons. And it's, it's amazing to see that there are some men who are behind bars who have found inner peace and freedom, emotional freedom, mm-hmm. but they will be in prison for life. And yet there are men who are not behind bars, but they're in a prison in their own mind or, or emotions. Mm-hmm. That for me is, is one of the scariest things when you are free, not behind bars, but you're emotionally imprisoned. The good thing about being insecure and not feeling good about what you're doing is I worked really hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I didn't realize till I was older and in a place where I was managing people, how valuable what I did was. Because mm-hmm. I just assumed everybody had the same work ethic and the same mm-hmm. drives. And I was just doing it more of, wanting to please people and out of fear Mm -hmm. and found out I was pretty good at the political Mm -hmm. world and different things and made Mm -hmm. myself available and eventually became Mayor Coleman's deputy chief of staff and his public utilities director. And as you know, when Mayor Ginther came in, I was his first chief of staff. And I think it was at that point that I thought, you know, I I might have something here. I might actually be pretty good because Mayor Ginther was really the first person who sought me out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because we don't know it at the time, you know, just can't, you know, you're operating at the level of consciousness that you're at and you think you have things compartmentalized and that you're focused, you're in your career, you're having some success, you're trying to balance things at home. 
and you're having drinks, right? And yeah. and it was in your family. It's also not just in the family. It's like societally yeah. everywhere. And I don't know if it's if that's true in in the world of politics or if there are other yeah, right and people in your role. Like it's a tough job. It's a grind. Really tough. I mean, you're yeah. on all the time, and a drink probably was what you felt you needed at the time. And in reality, it was only going to get you so far. I think what I discovered as I got older is I did have a skill, but that skill comes so naturally to me. Like most Mm -hmm. people that are good at something, they say, I don't understand why you can't do it. And managing people and interacting with people. And maybe it's part of how I grew up and trying to make everybody happy and juggle everything. Mm -hmm. I just can stay very calm in a chaotic world. And mm-hmm. I can see your point of view, your point of view, mm-hmm. the other person's point of view and, and come to consensus. Mm-hmm. And I think that, especially in government, you're trying to land in the middle. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't be either or in government. You have to serve everybody, but you do have to make decisions. And so I think my ability to, to manage, make people feel included just works. Mm-hmm. And the truth is public utilities has 1300 people. And they all have a role and they're all trained and they're all really good at what they do. And my job is not to do any of their jobs. And mm-hmm. that's where the mistake is of people who thought I would fail. My job is to manage them mm-hmm. and to support them. And if I support them, they're going to support me. I go out of my way now to tell my friends I love them. I go mm-hmm. out of my way to, to thank people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing I haven't gotten very good at that I'm working on is loving myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what holds me back from everything. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, he's tough. He's, mm-hmm. he's not emotional and this and that. And it's because I think we're all born with this innate love and light. Mm-hmm. And, and I let that out at an early age and I was taught to put it back in. Mm-hmm. And so when I let it out, it's hard for me because I, I feel like I'm going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And being married again, and being in a relationship where you're fully immersed in being vulnerable and love and putting your life on the line again, it's scary. Sure. And even though intellectually, I know it's the best thing that could happen to me and I have the best wife I could ever have. And, you know, I'll love her more than anything, but I don't always do the best job of communicating that because it's hard because sure. I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. Yeah. Honestly. And she knows that. And we talk, I can, yeah. I can talk like that, but sometimes the, the raw yeah. letting go, in my experience doesn't work out for me, yeah. but, but I can do things that can, position my children to be happy or her children to be happy or you to be happy or mm-hmm, someone else mm-hmm. to be happy. I can I make, you, yeah. I can do things that will right. help people. And I love watching people that are truly happy. Right. I unfortunately do not experience that very often and yeah. I'm okay with it. So I'd try to find my joy in being useful to others. And I'm still broken, but I'm okay. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's anything mm-hmm. knock on wood that could ever put me down where I was. Yeah. It has set me back, Mm -hmm. but I'm never going to question my path or my faith or Mm -hmm. my decisions anymore. I'm going to roll with it. Yeah. I just want to see it to the end. Shame like hides in the darkness, right? And so we Mm. recover, we heal in the light. And so that was one of the reasons when I started speaking really openly about my experience was I could continue to hide that and be embarrassed by the fact that I was an addict or an alcoholic or someone with substance use disorder, whatever the the terminology that people choose. 
but I didn't want that anymore. And mm. I, it was okay, you know, to be me. And also what I, you know, you referenced the brown paper bag and kind of, it's what we're told, it's what we're seeing, right? Like mm -hmm. this is how an addict looks. This is how an alcoholic looks. And when I got sober, there's nobody talking. There were no women speaking mm -hmm. about recovery and sobriety that I could find. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were, but you know, mm -hmm. I remember going to the bookstore <laughs> because I'm a lover of knowledge and information. I went to Books a Million and DuPont Circle that I was living in DC and I walked in and I was like, okay, self-help, where do I go? Mm -hmm. You know, so I go mm -hmm. in the self-help section and there's like, you know, all the books. Mm -hmm. It's like four on recovery. It's mm -hmm. like what to expect your first year, mm -hmm. Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp, which is incredible biography of a woman's experience with addiction and drinking. And even in, in the, you know, the big book is what's used in 12 Steps. There are very few stories that are written by women because mm -hmm. it was founded by men. And, mm -hmm. and so... I was like, wow, I guess, you know, this is all I have. And so I went home and I was trying to read it all and try to like understand it. And the biggest thing for me in understanding my addiction was just letting go. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to understand it. I just I needed to know and understand that it was an issue and that mm -hmm. it was a problem. And recovery and addiction and sobriety, they can all look different, you know, mm -hmm. depending on which, because I know there's a lot of sober curious, which I think is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I have a, um, I have a friend who's, she's 25 and she called me and, and she was like, once I start drinking, it's not that I can't stop. It's just that I make bad decisions. It kind of impairs mm -hmm. my judgment, but I don't drink all the time. But when I, she's like, do you think I'm an alcoholic? Only you can answer that. She's like, but I don't want to drink because I make bad decisions. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. then you don't have to. And she's mm -hmm. like, but I don't identify as no. I'm like, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it's a choice. But I think that mm -hmm. we're told that, you know, drinking is the way to escape the mommy wine culture and mm -hmm. the way that it's marketed and the way that mm -hmm. we're told, like at the end of the day, you go home and you pour a glass of wine and it's going to take everything away. It's going to mm -hmm. make you feel better. And I think that's a huge disservice that people are getting. So when I feel angry or when I feel disappointed or sad or all those things, like nobody wants to sit in that. Mm -hmm. Nobody really likes to feel sad or angry or, and so I sit and I'm like, what can I do to escape this? I'm going to go on Instagram or I'm going to eat ice cream or I'm going to mm -hmm. go like whatever. And I think the hardest thing to do is just sit with that and know mm -hmm. that like it's going to pass, right? There's this, the emotions and feelings stay with us for 60 to 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. But the story we tell ourselves that we loop in our mind is what keeps us stuck there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if we can sit in that discomfort for that amount of time and then release it and be like, you know what, I'm angry because this, you know, this person did that. And then it's like, you know what, I'm just going to let it go. Mm -hmm. But I, br I do it. I bring myself back to it. And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to do this and mm -hmm. I'm going to tell them this and I'm going to, and it loops mm -hmm. and it stays. And so I think that's the biggest struggle is, is being able to stay present in the present moment and being willing to accept whatever that moment offers us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. not wanting to change the way we feel because we always want to feel good. Right. That's why I drank. And that's why maybe we overexercise or maybe we eat ice cream or because we want to feel good. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, I can't feel those really high highs and great joys without also knowing what it feels like to be uncomfortable and to be sad and because I wouldn't appreciate them so much, mm -hmm. you know, and there's this beautiful, I might botch it, but it's like, you know, the people that you see with the lights, the people that you see happy and shining and rainbows know that they had to go into the darkness to get that light mm -hmm. because that's, you've got to experience some dark times in order to know, like, I don't want to go back there and I'm going to, I'm willing to do whatever it takes in a healthy way to make sure those demons stay where they are. Mm -hmm. My dad died at the end of 2022, right after I, a couple months after I celebrated 15 years. Mm. And at the end of 15, at the end of that moment was the biggest point in 15 years that I wanted to drink. Mm. The mm. loss of, you know, after fifth, four of the top five things, stressors in any person's life happened in one year. Mm -hmm. And had they happened at one year, my life would have looked different, but mm -hmm. I had 15 years of healing and recovery and mm -hmm. change and rituals and 
behaviors that led me to that point. And so when my dad died, I played the tape through, as they say, you know, I was like, mm -hmm. I really want to drink. And I'm like, mm -hmm. nope, because if mm -hmm. I drink, I know what's happening. Mm -hmm. I know there's a really strong possibility I don't come back. Mm -hmm. I don't get my recovery back. I get my son taken away. I lose all my friends and family. I end up wrecking my car. I mean, there are all of those things. And so, but I had healed to the point at that point that I knew that that wasn't a good option. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect. And I remember when I got, someone said, what's your definition of perfect? Write it. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote it, mm -hmm. you know, well, when this happens, I'm perfect. She mm -hmm. goes, great. Will you be happy when you achieve this? Mm -hmm. Like, No, I'll write something else. And she's like, lose the word perfection. It's just a goal, you know, it, but it's this idea of I'm perfect the way I am in this moment. And I can try, you know, if I want to be a faster runner, or I mm -hmm. want to be a better writer or whatever mm -hmm. it is, like, that's just about betterment of self. It's not about finding perfection. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on on how technology is being used to do what you do and maybe how you see that continuing to influence the world of art as, as it continues to influence everything that we're doing more and more. I think it's just the same as anything. It's, technology is always a tool, really, rather than like being the key part of your creative process. And as technology progresses especially subcultures like graffiti or whatever, always reappropriating stuff or mm -hmm. taking technology perhaps meant for something else and using it for mark making or something else. But yeah, the, the grid that you mentioned, I guess, is just a way of mapping my work onto the wall that involves arbitrary mark making. And then I take a photo and use Photoshop to put my design on top and then I can see where it kind of lines up with the grid. So, I mean... People were, artists were doing that hundreds of years ago, apparently using candles and glass and projecting essentially an image onto a canvas and they were tracing it. We've always been using what we can to try and get the job done. I think technology will always just be a bit like that. I think when art becomes a lot about technology, it sort of loses something. We talked a little bit about this at dinner, just the interest in getting into the studio and creating on canvas or sculpture pantone talked a lot about you know what he's doing now getting off the wall and into the studio maybe you could just talk a little bit about what it's like for you to do both and and why maybe you're more energized to do one or the other well i think the studio is much more a space where you can experiment and the murals, you can't just show up on the big building and say, oh, I'm just going to experiment here. I have two weeks. And first of all, you got to send rendering and get that approved by whoever's financing it. So you better just make sure you get the job done. For me, that's what I was missing. When Once you do just murals back to back, there is just no room for experimenting because you're like five murals ahead sending your paint orders and your design. And like, when do you actually sit back and think and, and experiment and make happy accidents? I think we all reach an age where we feel the need to go back and do that. But then it's nice to get back out and do a big mural because you get a real kick out of painting and seeing the reaction. Like It's two completely different things. Like you get direct feedback from the people seeing it. Mm -hmm. That's really thrilling and fun. Sometimes you just want space mm -hmm. by yourself, space to make happy accidents. I think 
walls uh, public spaces are uh, a fast process and more fresh and you feel something different you know because you are on top of 25 floor you know and you can see the city and like nobody and it's super special but when you were in the studio for a, for a big show a lot of people work with you and you are focused on different pieces for maybe two months or three months you know it's different process and when i do sculpture for the public spaces you create for a month in the studio but for to bring out two or three you know it's like a mix between the wall and between the exhibitions good mix <laughs> you found the way <laughs> So my studio space is actually my apartment. <laughs> so, you know, rent is super high. So I, it's also like my home too. So it's what I come back home to. It's my studio. I have like a little tiny easel in like the corner of my 250 square feet like room. <laughs> yeah. So I just say, same with Adele. She mentioned experimenting. So that's what I love doing. I like, I'm always a student of my craft. Never stop exploring different mediums and see what I enjoy doing. I fell in love with spray paint too. So obviously that's more so the outdoors. You can't really experiment with that, but just learning from different types of artists and what they do, I think that's important as an artist, just seeing the techniques. And he mentioned the doodle grid method. I have yet to try that. For me, studio work is just my home, my sacred place. If you could leave us with a final thought and or advice to others, artists, creatives, just anything that stands out as you pause and think that you'd want to really make sure people heard as they're going out in their own journeys and maybe wanting to do some of the things that you've done. I would say just do it. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm already a big overthinker, even though I'm trying to do it as much as I can. I think a lot of ideas I had when I was a lot younger so still quite good ideas now and it's just the same for everybody just if you have an idea or an urge to do it you just have to start to do it because not really until you do it that you can really progress i mean it sounds obvious but you can think about something for as long as you want but when you actually do it it turns into something else it gives you other ideas and so, so i would just say just do it whatever it is quit the day job if you want to be an artist i mean it's the only way <laughs> i think it's important to enjoy the way more than than the end you know Enjoy the journey and be happy yes, for creating. Yeah. Another life model that I live by is you never know what you're good at if you don't try. Literally try anything, take a risk. Yeah, you never know if you're going to be good at something. If you broaden your definition of what is creative, then it starts to make life more fun, I think. Mm -hmm. You realize there aren't really any rules. Like one of my favorite things is just as an example, I have a cabin in the woods and there are like all kinds of cool wildlife on the property and I don't get to see it because whenever I'm walking around, they're hiding, but I would love to know like what is out there. So I just sent a cold email to this guy who works at National Geographic and who sets up all of their camera traps to do wildlife photography. And so they're all like motion triggered. He you know sets up a camera in the woods and then if an animal walks in front of the beam, it takes three shots or whatever. And so I sent him this email to try to convince him to come out to the property and teach me how do you do what you do and set up these, these remote triggered cameras and everything. And it took a couple of attempts, but eventually he was like, all right, fine. Like I'll, I'll come out and show you. And so he came out and it's so cool. And now I have four of those set up and we got <laughs> photos of bobcats and raccoons and mm -hmm. turkeys and all kinds of stuff. The point that I'm getting at is I feel like most people just sort of assume that something like that is kind of out of reach. Yeah. That like, oh, 
how would I even get in touch with a National Geographic photographer? Like, how, how would that even be possible? I wouldn't yeah. know what to do to take wildlife photos. The truth is, I had no idea what to do either, but there are no rules. So I just emailed the person who does that thing and then yeah. see if I can convince them to come out and see what I can learn from them. Yeah. And if you take that kind of thinking and apply it to every area of life, you would be stunned what you can like come across and learn and build. Like there's so many cool things that you can interface with. And it's just the courage and the willingness to reach out or initiate or send a cold email and view it as like, there is no rule. It's just a story in your head that this is something that's hard to do. Like you yeah. just need to get over that little story and then there are all kinds of things open up. It started small and that's fine. Like that's how, that's how everybody starts. <laughs> like yeah. that's just part of it. And it's a, if you're just starting out as a creator and you're looking at someone like me and you're like, oh, he's got millions of subscribers and this huge audience and whatever, you also need to realize I've been doing this for like 12 years now. Right. So the reality is most people don't do it for 12 years. That's right. And I'm not saying that you need to do it for 12 to figure out if it's working, but a lot of people are like, how do I get these results? And whether it's writing or fitness or something else, my answer is usually like, listen, you want to get in shape, like don't miss a workout for two years and then get back to me and let me know if the program's working or not, yeah. you know, or like if you want to build an audience, what I did was I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday, and I did that for the first three years. So go do that for three years and then see where you're at. Right. And the reality is there are very few people who will actually do that. And so That's you right. just cross an enormous threshold just by showing up consistently. Consistently over a period of time. Yeah. This concept of designing your life or structuring your day, using the tools in the book to give you more control. Ultimately, I think what we want is to become the architect of your habits and not the victim of them. A lot of people feel like their habits happen to them. They're almost like, oh, I did it and I didn't even realize it, or I'm halfway through the action before I even catch myself doing it. And so it sort of feels like you're out of control of the process. And what I was hoping, one of the things that I was hoping to be able to do with the book is give people a little bit more control over that kind of the way that an architect designs a house, can you design your behavior? Can you design your day to look the way you want or to you know take back control a little bit? Life is dynamic and changing and there's always gonna be elements and aspects of it that you can't control and that's fine, but there is quite a bit that you can do. Take control and design the kind of day that you wanna have. And so it's really just about kind of trying to empower people to have the tools they need or the mindset and the frame that they need to be able to do that. Once you have kids, or it doesn't even have to be kids, it could just be anybody who's really tightly constrained on time. What you realize is that you need to have some, even if it's just five minutes or 30 minutes each day where you're working on something that falls into that category, then you can still be really productive because the work that you put in each day starts to layer on top of the day before and it starts to compound and you get a year or two years down the line and you have this like tidal wave of previous effort that's working for you. But if you don't do those things, if you don't work on work that keeps working for you once it's done, if you don't work on things that persist and compound, then the efforts that you're putting in are just, you're just kind of solving the emergency of the day and another day slips by and you didn't like build an asset, you didn't accumulate anything. And so the difference between those two tasks, tasks that accumulate and that build upon each other and persist and tasks that kind of vanish once the work is done, there's an enormous divide there. And I think as your time gets tighter, you need to be more and more focused on making sure you're spending at least a little bit of time each day in that bucket that's gonna compound. I had spent so much time in the forest and in the mm. forest around uh, Columbus, just 
in a way, letting go of, of myself, getting away from your ego. The ego for me was the one that was trying to protect me, mm-hmm. that was afraid. That's not how you think that it's affecting you, but it is. And when you can really look into it. Oh, yeah. So getting into those places of, I guess, just getting away from that, getting into oneness, getting into the forest, getting back to nature. And then finding, I think what I've found is a comfort with myself. Because one of the things in the maybe 2016, 17, 18, the company was growing. I was trying to do too many things. And I think I just kind of lost who I was in trying so hard to be everything to everyone, yeah. you know? And so I spent a long time the last few years just like just being, not mm-hmm. being anything and actually just asking a lot of questions and just getting really curious about my myself, how I feel. And I think what happened is too, that I connected very much with who I was when I was younger mm-hmm. and that, that I still am that person, but with a lot more experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And I found just... Who was that person? Yeah, just free. Yeah. You know, I mean, I somehow was just free from the time I was very young. And that was always very important to me. Today is Jerry Garcia's birthday and I, Big Deadhead, and I was just reading something that Jerry had said about the Grateful Dead, which was that it gave people a place just to go and be free and have fun and listen to music. It was really not just about the dead. It was about music, that it's just opportunity for people to be free. And I'm interested in this idea that you came back to this this child that you remembered and are trying to integrate that into your adult life. I think that's really great. You're zeroing in on it. Exactly. I, um, I think that it's true. I think that I I was trying to survive. I thought I would just, I really thought that I was going to be the one who like the founder who could like survive growth in the company. And I tried so hard Mm -hmm. to do that. And that was a lot of me trying to be linear, basically. And I'm not linear at all, at all. It's not even like a circle. It's like a sphere, the way that I encounter the world and the way I process the world. And it's, it's just a very different way. And I was trying to, in a way, suppress that. And this is, these conversations are so interesting because I feel like business, so like Mm -hmm. when we look at our culture and how we're trained, I think business has a lot to do with it. I mean, in America, right? So Mm -hmm. we're trained Mm -hmm. in these command and control linear ways. And that is what growing up here means. It's a discipline. It's discipline. It's external discipline. I'm striving for an ideal. There's this man-made ideal that I'm supposed to be like. For women and men, it's different, but there's crossover and, you know, depending... And I think that I have never, never really subscribed to that. I mean, I was always felt like kind of an outsider or, you know, as an art kid. I mean, definitely questioned that when I was young. I was raised by artists. Definitely that wasn't my way and I didn't even know how to do it. So I find myself in, you know, whatever, 2017, I was like, God, for, for the last several years, I've really been trying too hard to do that. And it was a slow boil. And I was failing at that miserably. And that was when, you know, when I get back to the forest and I sort of find that getting back to myself, because for me, what I've always believed is that my internal discipline is stronger than the external discipline. So even in school, when I was younger, it's like, if you tell me to do something and you demand it of me, well, then I can't do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I won't do it. But if I feel it and it comes up from me, then I, I have endless capacity to suffer for getting it done and focus. And so that building Jenny's, you know, I mean, you just can focus on that, can suffer for it, can grow it. 
because it all came up from inside of me. It was this passion that I had. But if somebody else were to say that I could never do that, I could never do that for somebody else. And in a way, this overlaps with this, like, what is a grown-up conversation? Because I think most people in America would say, well, a grown-up is somebody who, who has discipline. And that the discipline they're talking about is external discipline. Mm-hmm. It's the discipline to be told to do something and then they do it. Mm-hmm. Or to feel that, you know, there's this ideal that they're striving for and they need to do it because of that. Not because it comes from this beautiful, infinite, potential internal space. So in 2008, the economy starts to crash, right? But what became the Great Recession, one of the worst recessions in over a decade, began being born. I lose over half of my clients in a matter of months. Therefore, I lost over half of my income. I couldn't pay my mortgage anymore. So I literally stopped paying my mortgage on a house that I had just bought like a year ago. I can't pay my bills. So I go from being a Dave Ramsey student who pays his credit card off every month. Six months later, I've got $52,000 on my credit card, mostly just groceries and utilities and just bills. I canceled my gym membership as soon as I started losing my income because I couldn't afford it. I canceled everything I could. So I literally am not exercising at all. Zero. I'm not, I'm doing zero exercise. And I start developing depression. It wasn't the level of depression that I had after chemotherapy where I had post-traumatic stress disorder. Like that was a different level. I wasn't suicidal. I was so hopeless. Like I'm losing money every day. I just felt like I was in quicksand. I'm losing money every day. I'm going further in debt every day. My house is going to be taken away from me here in the next, I don't know, month, two months, right? I don't know where I'm going to live. And my life, it literally went from like, everything's great to like, it's falling apart. I end up one day, a single quote changes my life. A friend of mine, John Berghoff, gave me advice. He told me to listen to a Jim Rohn audio. I finally confessed to John how bad my circumstances had gotten. I hadn't told anybody except my fiance, Ursula. I finally tell John, and John says, Hal, listen to a Jim Rohn audio. This audio changed my life at one point, what he said. I need to make money. Is this going to teach me how to make money? He said, no, it'll teach you how to think differently and how to change yourself you can change your life. Like, this is stupid, but fine. I'm desperate, whatever. Jim Rohn says your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development. And I stop and I rewind that audio and I listen to it again. And it lands for me. Your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development. Brett, I believe this is the disconnect for 95% of our society, if not more. If you're measuring your success and fulfillment in any area of your life, your health, your finances, your relationship, your happiness. On a scale of one to 10, let me ask you, 10 being the best, healthiest, happiest, most financially secure you could be, and one being the worst, what level does everyone want? I believe there's innate drive and desire within each of us to achieve level 10 for ourselves in terms of our potential and in terms of the outcomes and circumstances that we create in our lives. We want to be as happy, healthy, wealthy, successful as we can possibly be. It's innate. However, Jim Rohn explained that your level of success, the level 10 that you want in your life, will not exceed your level of personal development in terms of your knowledge, your beliefs, your self-confidence, your skills, your habits, et cetera. And I assessed, I want level 10 success, but my level of personal development is like at a two or a three. So epiphany was, I'm going to go home and find out what the world's most successful people do for their daily personal development. I'm going to model them. I'm going to do what they do. And theoretically, 
That should enable me to become a level three, four, five, just get better and better and better, become a better version of myself to become the level 10 version that I need to be to create and sustain the level 10 success that I want. I Googled best practices of personal development. I was looking for one, but Brett, I had a list of six. It was meditation, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and journaling. I went through all six of the practices. I wasn't very good at them. I didn't know how to meditate. The affirmations I found online felt goofy. But even after an hour of poorly executed practices, I realized this is the one thing that can change everything. If I start every day like this, with this much energy, clarity, motivation, in a peak mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual state, it's only a matter of time before I become the person that I need to be to transform my life. And the last thing I'll say, Brett, is it happened so fast. In less than two months during the Great Recession, the economy got worse. I more than doubled my income in two months. I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically to committing to run a 52-mile ultra marathon. And my depression didn't take two months to go away. It faded on the first day, gradually faded more and more every day because the hopelessness that I experienced for six months, every day as my miracle morning got better, I got better. And what the possibilities I saw for my life, the results I created got better. And I saw my wife in the hall one day, two months later, and I said, sweetheart, I signed on two more coaching clients today. We've doubled our income in two months. It feels like a miracle. It's all because of this morning routine. And I was never a morning person before. Now I love it. She said, it's your miracle morning. I said, I like that miracle morning, a miracle, which I simply define as a tangible, measurable result that is so far beyond what the average person believes is possible that it feels like a miracle. That's how I define a miracle in this context. Here's how you achieve miracles in your life. Two decisions, very simple. Unwavering faith is decision number one. And the second decision is extraordinary effort, meaning you decide what you want in your life. I want to beat cancer. I want to sell a million copies of my book, whatever the result you want in your life is. And you apply, you, may, you establish and maintain un wavering faith that that outcome is a possibility and you do it in writing. It has to be in writing or you'll forget. And it looks like this. I'm committed to blank. No matter what, there's no other option for me. I'm committed to beating cancer and living to be 100 plus years old alongside Ursula and the kids. No matter what, there's no other option. Whenever I felt fear that I was going to die, Brett, I pulled out those affirmations. They were printed on my bedside table. They were on my phone. They were everywhere. I'm committed to beating cancer no matter what. There is no other option. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.